0: You're listening to Climate Champions, a podcast from the Architects Journal. I'm Hattie Hartman, Sustainability Editor at the Architects Journal. Welcome to Climate Champions, where we offer inspiration and share essential knowledge about design in an era of climate emergency. In this series, we are speaking to innovators and change makers who are prioritizing retrofit and reuse over demolition and new build.
1: And I'm Hattie's co-host, George Morgan, director of 1.5 Architecture.
2: I've always thought it'd be quite fun to imagine a kind of retrofitting program like that on system-built housing in Eastern Europe, on Victorian housing in Britain. Obviously, people's heating bills would uh, <laughs> disappear to a large degree. But on the other hand, they'd no longer have period features.
0: Our guest today is Owen Hatherley, author, author, critic and culture editor of Tribune magazine. Welcome to this bonus episode of Climate Champions. We are glad to be back. This is the first of three episodes on Retrofit. Today, we are delighted to welcome two guests. First up is my colleague, Will Hurst, managing editor of the AJ, who will speak to us about the AJ's RetroFirst campaign. Then we'll speak to Owen. Before we speak to our guests, George and I would like to do a quick news roundup because so much has happened in the sustainability space since our last episode. For one, ACAN, the Architects Climate Action Network, has launched a new report, The Carbon Footprint of Construction, and this is a topic I've been following over the last decade and that Simon Sturgis and Ricks have been key in raising awareness about. ACAN's report is a 56-page report and it's a surprisingly easy read. It cuts through all the jargon and calculation tools that have muddied the water on this topic for the last five years, it has very clear graphics, and it lays out a timeline of the specific policy changes that are needed in the building regs and planning to make regulating embodied carbon a reality. It also briefly looks at what's happening in other European countries, and the UK is behind the curve. This really is a must read and you can download it from ACAN's website. Have you had a chance to look at it, George?
1: Yeah, I think it's a great report. One thing I did notice is that the proportion of impacts coming from embodied carbon seem quite high. And those, those are higher than you might see from, for example, the Passive House Institute. I guess it depends on what assumptions you're, you're making. And as we improve building performance, the embodied impacts become a larger proportion of the building's overall impacts. And yeah, I definitely encourage everybody to uh, join in ACAN's campaign to get embodied carbon regulated as part of the building regulations.
0: I totally agree with you. In fact, I think the figure that the ACAN report cites in terms of the percentage of a project represented in the embodied carbon is as much as 70 percent, depending on the building type. And I, for one, don't think we've cracked operational carbon at all yet. And in fact, that's what my new book uh, that I co-authored with Judith Kempion and Sophie Pelsmakers is all about. It's really focusing on the critical role of bringing operational carbon emissions down as well if we're going to get to net zero. So the book is out now and available from RIBA Publishing, and I will be presenting it at the AJ Summit on March 25th, which is a free event. And I urge you to look it up because there are a lot of good speakers, including Ed Masria of Architecture 2030 from New Mexico. And uh, three copies of my book will be up as a prize draw and we'll have a discount code for selling the book uh, at the event on the day. Another really interesting thing that's happened in the last couple of weeks is that Zaha Hadid's Timber Stadium in Stroud has been given the green light by the English Football League. It's an all-timber stadium for forest green rovers, which will be located at junction 13 of the M5 in Gloucestershire. And this is, I think, a project to watch because of the client's vision. The client is Dale Vince, owner of Forest Green and founder of renewable electricity company Ecotricity, which is based in Stroud and employs 700 people, the town's largest employer. I have to say that the CGI's of the proposed 5,000 seat stadium look pretty good. Um, What do you think, George?
1: yeah I, I agree I think it, I think it looks great. A few of the practices recent projects uh, there's been some swoopiness on the on the facade but now they've got control of the whole form of the building it really works although yeah as you pointed out it's just by a, a motorway junction there seems to be quite a big car park on the on the site so yeah while the embodied impacts of the building there's been some real strides made there it seems like there's a kind of transport issue thinking about transport is, is still the UK's biggest category of emissions.
0: It's an interesting project because a practice like Zaha's has the resources to really do some research on a project like this. Plus they have experience with stadiums having done the Aquatic Center and the stadiums in Qatar for the World Cup. So what they've done here is that they've designed the stadium for 5,000 but it's set up so that it could be easily extended to to double that capacity and they've done things like space the CLT structure so that the floor slab and seating terraces can be made of timber. Usually these are always concrete. And it's part of what's being called an eco-park on the edge of Stroud, and it's meant to have year-round recreational uses as well as an industrial park with offices, I believe, for ecotricity among others. I think it's a project to watch. You know, the aspirations are high at this point. The current timeline is for it to complete in 2024, but definitely one to watch. What else has come on your radar, George?
1: Well, the MHCLG has released its uh, National Model Design Code, which is out for consultation until the 27th of March. It's a template for local councils to base their own design codes on, and it's part of the move from the discretionary planning system to a more zonal system. In terms of sustainability, there are things in there which are quite bad. It talks quite positively about reflecting context in a way that seems like if the adjacent land is low density car dependent suburbs, that's what it's encouraging for adjacent sites being brought forward. And there's examples in the document of car parking at the front of suburban house types that it doesn't really look like it will do that much to prevent the standard mass house builder types proliferating everywhere. And also on the policy side is a new report issued by uh, Policy Exchange, the centre-right think tank, called Strong Suburbs. A lot of different people have fed into this report. It's got a forward by Ben Derbyshire and Housing Secretary Robert Jenrick says that he supports it. So it looks like it carries quite a bit of weight. So what it proposes is that in post-1918 streets and neighbourhoods, they can vote to densify themselves. This plays into the YIMBY, the yes-in-my-backyard agenda of enabling development to come forward to a greater extent in existing residential areas. So again, as part of the government's rather traditionalist ideas about what constitutes beauty, there's images all through the report of the facades of Georgian terrace houses, without really any recognition that if you're making homes to meet the uh, nationally described space standards, they don't really that well fit behind this Georgian facade. And where are the balconies? It doesn't seem to be thoroughly worked out. But overall, I do think that you need some kind of mechanism like this to enable the densification of existing suburban areas to be brought forward rather than just expanding into the, into the green belt or picking on capital estates for redevelopment or industrial land in order to make denser, more sustainable, walkable neighbourhoods for, for people to live.
0: That sounds really interesting. In fact, I wrote my master's thesis many years ago on this very subject of densifying the American suburbs. And I think, you know, there's this whole greenbelt discussion. If we're going to find a way to release land in existing suburbs, we have to look down this path. So it'll be interesting to see how that report plays out. We'll put these various links on the show notes for this episode. There is one other thing I'd like to highlight before we move on to speak to Owen, and that is a competition which has been launched by MOBI, the Ministry of Building Innovation and Education. It's a fantastic student competition which calls for interdisciplinary teams, which I think is a great thing. Uh, Architect together with an engineer and either a landscape architect or an urban designer and either a quantity surveyor or a project manager. So very interesting real life simulation and This competition is accompanied by a series of webinars that have been going on for the whole month of February which are open access on the competition's YouTube channel and it has many of the leading lights of sustainable design talking about everything to do from timber and sustainable forestry practices to carbon counting to how to detail a timber house and it's fantastic bite-sized chunks of CPD, all there, free for you to watch. Today we are joined by my colleague, Will Hurst, Managing Editor of the Architect's Journal. Many listeners will know Will for his intrepid investigative reporting. I was delighted when after effectively single-handedly torpedoing Thomas Heatherwick's garden bridge, Will set his sights on how architects should be tackling climate emergency. Two years ago, he masterminded the AJ's wake-up call for architects, clearly spelling out the need to address whole life carbon. From there, he moved on to the subject of retrofit and launched the AJ's Retro First campaign. Will, tell us how you devised the RetroFirst campaign and what it's all about.
3: Well, it really stemmed from the IPCC report. This is the report from the United Nations at the end of 2018, which spelled out in pretty stark and terrifying terms, at that point, that we had about 12 years to radically reduce carbon emissions globally in order to avert catastrophe. That really resonated with me. I think I'd been worrying about climate change, like many of us, for for a long time. But this was so stark and so frightening that it made me think, what could we do at the AJ? You know, I work at an architecture magazine. I was aware that construction and architecture had a big carbon footprint. So it just got me thinking and had very supportive colleagues, including yourself at the AJ. And we decided to work out the most effective way of responding. And, and that's where it all came from, really.
0: So what exactly are you asking for in the RetroFirst campaign?
3: Well, it's really, I think about the circular economy, it's really the realisation that carbon emissions in construction are very, very closely tied to waste. It's a very wasteful industry. It's all about putting up shiny new buildings and often knocking down older buildings that stand in the way of that progress and that development and that densification. So the, the realization was one really to do with the circular economy, I think, and that architects and their peers have been concentrated very much on the operational or day-to-day carbon emissions of buildings once finished and not thinking very much or or, or at all in some cases about the embodied carbon, the other part of the equation, which is all the emissions that go into constructing it. You know, the concrete, the steel, the plastic, the aluminium. So it was about trying to refocus our readers on that part of the story, really.
0: And putting demolition as a question mark on any project, really scrutinizing whether that's the way forward.
3: Yeah, I think demolition is done in a kind of unthinking way a lot of the time you know, this building doesn't work very well, or people think it's ugly, well, let's get rid of it. And people, perhaps because the general public isn't as connected to the building industry as as other industries, I mean, why would they be? They're consumers thinking about fast fashion and food and recycling, which are, uh, are more immediate for members of the public, rather than the buildings that they live and work in, which they don't often have that much control over. So I think it was just as as we have a problem with fast fashion and replacing our mobile phones every year or two years, we've also got a big problem with doing the same thing with buildings, but actually on a on a bigger scale in some regards.
0: So what has Retro First achieved in its first year? How have you gone about this?
3: Well. It's an uphill struggle, and I I definitely think there's a lot more to do. But I think we have achieved a lot in terms of recognition as a a better awareness of this issue.
0: I think you've put it front and centre in the profession, and I think it's a great accomplishment. And also, you have a lot of high-profile backers. Have people been coming forward, or you have to solicit people, or a bit of both?
3: Well, this is the great thing, Hattie. I think we... um, We've been surprised really at how organic the development of the campaign has been. It's really not so much a question of us going to people and saying, will you sign up? There was a bit of that in the in the past when we first were trying to get it off the ground. But latterly, it's been companies and organisations coming to us and saying, we want to get involved with this campaign. We think it's right on the money. Can we use your logo? Can we talk about it? Can we sign up? And of course, the answer is nearly always yes. And again, I found that with a recent letter to the Times newspaper, which I coordinated. And we want to expand the conversation to politicians and opinion formers and the general public. So the first part of that was getting this letter into the Times. And I was delighted to find that hugely high profile people like uh, Doreen Lawrence and David Chipperfield and Norman Foster and Thomas Heatherwick Kevin McLeod and people like that were very keen. You know, all I had to do was ask. And I think virtually everyone I approached said, yes, that just shows that there is the appetite for this. And there's the appetite for making it a a more front and centre conversation.
0: So what are the levers for change that you see in terms of regulation or policy that has to change?
3: Well, I'm very interested in politics and studied power and influence and hard power and soft power at university that was my degree and and I think architecture is is very political actually so in devising the campaign I thought quite hard about what are the most effective things that we can ask for because we didn't a lot of these sort of newspaper or magazine campaigns are are aimed at their own audiences and we didn't want to do it like that we thought actually architects are very important but they're not the ones ultimately making the decisions here the the decisions are usually being made by clients some of those are in the public sector some of those are in the private sector but all of those clients are working within a framework and the framework is set by the government so we really thought about how do we change that framework how do we change the rules of the game and the three things we centered in on were taxation number one the system of VAT we've got is skewed and is perversely encouraging demolition and and rebuild when it should be doing the opposite because you've got the standard rate of VAT applied to refurbishment in most cases and a much lower rate of VAT, usually 0 or 5% applied to a lot of new build such as housing. So that was the first one. Change the system of VAT.
0: That particular one has been going on for so long. I mean, do you think that its time has come?
3: Yeah, I think there's everything to play for. You're right that people in the industry and certain organisations in the industry have been calling for this for decades, really, and Treasury has been completely unmoving on it and unwilling to contemplate reform. But the arguments have changed. The government, um, uh, Parliament, has declared a a climate emergency, and most of the local authorities in the country have declared a climate emergency. If it's really an emergency, then you have to consider doing things very differently to deal with it. So the climate argument is a much stronger argument than some of the other very good arguments that have been made in the past for VAT reform. And now getting back to the, the levers, we thought, why is there nothing or next to nothing in national planning policy about this? Why is reuse not being considered, or pushed rather? You know, why isn't refurbishment and retrofit being described as the default, or the first port of call in planning policy? So we thought we should be asking government for that to amend the NPPF, and also the building regs, because the building regs are another type of of lever in the development cycle. And the third one was procurement, because the public sector is a very powerful client in its own right why should they not lead from the front on this they should be setting an example and stimulating the circular economy by saying that every development that is backed by public sector money should look to retrofit solutions first so that was our third demand and you know i think the conversation has has been going well government hasn't said it will do all these things really although there was a planning minister in the Lords that said a few months ago some rather positive things about the retrofirst campaign and said that these would be uh, incorporated into planning reform as that progresses. We haven't seen evidence of that, but that's that's what he said. But I think a lot of high-profile voices now, including a parliamentary select committee, have been echoing what we've been saying. Um, Only this week, the Environmental Audit Committee told the government they should be doing two out of the three things that RetroFirst proposes.
0: So where are you planning to take the campaign next?
3: Well, I think it's making the public more aware because we want, you know, ultimately we want the government to act and that involves putting pressure on the government from MPs. So how do you put pressure on MPs? Well, you get awareness among the general public and you ask the general public, including architects, I hasten to add, and engineers and others who who support this agenda, to lobby their MPs and their local councillors. I mean, it's interesting that we're starting to see, because of the use of the the hashtag RetroFirst online, you're starting to see local campaign groups who are trying to save buildings that are under threat of demolition start to use these terms, having not perhaps been aware of it before. So I think there's a very interesting move that the campaign can make where we keep the pressure on the built environment, but we also start to, to grow the, the awareness of the campaign generally. And the latest thing we're doing in that regard is a short film which we hope will be a kind of explainer as well as a call to action that, that you know, we can put on the internet and on social media.
0: Fantastic. So if listeners want to support the campaign, what can they do now?
3: The main thing we want people to do is to use the term to talk to their local MPs and their councillors, as I was saying before, to think about examples in their own neighbourhood where these questions should be being asked. They can use the hashtag RetroFirst. They can Google RetroFirst and find out more uh, on our own website. And as I say, they can start talking to those in power their representatives about why this is such an important part of the story in tackling the climate crisis. I think it's even more important because we've got COP26 coming up, the International Climate Summit at the end of the year. There is a real opportunity, I think, for the UK to show international leadership on the circular economy. It's not enough just to say we're going to stimulate electric vehicles and things like that. Um, you know, and we've been a great success in other areas of the economy, like wind power, for example, it's not enough to do that. You have to do everything. That's the scale of the crisis. And I think at the moment, the built environment is being rather neglected by government, which is a shame. And I hope they wake up to this very rapidly.
0: That's excellent, Will. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to have you here to explain this in a bit more detail.
3: No, it's a pleasure talking to you, Hattie, and thanks for your ongoing support.
0: Owen, oh, it's a real delight and privilege to have you with us today. We've just been speaking to my colleague, Will Hurst, about the AJ's Retro First campaign, that prioritizes retrofit and reuse over demolition and rebuild. In your latest book, Red Metropolis, you've written about how this issue has played out in two projects in South London, Carl Turner's Peckham Levels and the Elephant and Castle Shopping Centre. Can you describe these projects for our listeners? Is there a difference between reuse and demolition and new build in terms of the social impacts, such as rents and gentrification?
2: Yeah, very much so. I mean, abstracting it completely from the ecological issue for a moment. One of the things that's very striking about a lot of um, post-war spaces is the way that they are sort of judged on their first incarnation. They're judged on how did they work in the 1960s? Were they successful at the time? Were they unsuccessful at the time? Did people hate them by the 70s? And there it ends. And... There's also a kind of, along with that, this idea that they are uniquely inflex- unflexible that somehow a Georgian house, you can knock a wall through, you can do this and do that to it, you can kind of reshape it for your needs, and you can't do this in a modernist building. And this is fallacious. And I think one of the ways you could see it was fallacious was by Those two schemes, you could look at the Elephant and Castle and you could look at Peckham Levels and you could go, well, these are actually the first proper shopping mall in London, really, with an office block on top and a concrete car park. Both of them turned out to be something very, very different by the 2010s to what they've been built as. And whereas the example of Peckham Levels, that, that transformation had been celebrated and flagged up. You know no, no one really thought there was any point of talking about the fact that it was originally just a, a car park for like mini mall Peck and rye and everyone when talking about the elephant castle at least in the local press and in the national press wouldn't talk about the fact that it had been transformed over several decades into pretty much the last successful multicultural space in central london you know sort of latin shops and restaurants the Polish restaurant that was there for a while, the Chinese supermarket that was there, and then upstairs, the bowling alley, which obviously had a more kind of young clientele, and the um, the bingo hall, which had a more elderly one. You had a complete cross-section of a of London from different cultures, different backgrounds, different parts of the world, different ages, different social classes, all using that for their own purposes in a way that had not been envisaged by the original designer. And this was absolutely ignored, whereas... The similar transformation in Peckham Levels was seen as a wonderful achievement. And that's kind of
1: where I came in, was kind of like,
2: huh, how did this happen?
1: A lot of what is under threat of demolition is is post-war. There's endless examples at Derby Assembly Rooms, Bristol's Royal Mail Sorting Office, Coventry Town Centre with, for example, Coventry's cabinet member for Regeneration referring to these buildings as concrete monstrosities. So how do you view the ongoing backlash to modernism? It's been going for so long. Yeah, uh, the Coventry example was just an
2: example of someone that should not be in that job. But like someone's showing, showing that degree of ignorance. It's like pick up a peps in the man. You can get it in the local library. It's not rocket science. It's in, you don't have to read someone's PhD. Just go into your local bloody branch library and read a peps there. And you will realize that this is one of the most important spaces in 20th century Britain. And also very little of it is made of concrete. And that was just maddening because the quality there is particularly high. And it has been particularly run down. And much like with Victorian buildings, you know, in the way they were regarded in the 1960s, just clean them, take the muck off them, take the adverts off them, and you'll find that they actually look quite nice. And what was kind of frustrating is that that was happening at the same time, that in London or Manchester, even Bristol to a degree, actually quite uninteresting concrete buildings are being really fetishized quite minor brutalist architecture like that car park in Welbeck Street. People were getting really, really like, they cannot remove this concrete building. And actually, I don't think they should have removed that car park. Whereas Coventry, you're dealing with stuff of world significance. So I think that's really to do with, I wouldn't, don't want to get into the towns versus cities debate because A, Coventry is a city and B, it's a bit of a non-debate. But I do think that there was a process that's happened where if people under 40 it is not axiomatic that 60s buildings are bad. There's a general view that they might be interesting. You don't have to go the whole hog to the kind of like, I have an Instagram account of my favourite concrete car parks, although there are thousands of these, to see that. You know, it's very rare for the kind of knee-jerk hatred of concrete monstrosities that you get among people like that councillor to be seen among younger people. And that's just a simple question of fashion. The reason that stuff was so hated in the first place was largely because of fashion. The reason why the Victorian buildings were demolished in a lot of cases was due to fashion. And the reason why they're now considered attractive by people under 40 is largely fashion. And that's when one can bring it back to the question of of retrofitting and the question of the enormous wastage of carbon involved in things like Birmingham demolishing all its good buildings and building a
1: load of crap ones. So if it's a question of fashion, how do we get people to focus more about quality rather than on this sort of received opinion, notions of what's good or bad?
2: I feel we've done that. And if it's not got through, I don't think we can blame ourselves. You know, that the last 10 years has seen an enormous amount of publications and TV programmes and films go into like the shop at the Festival Hall or the Barbican. And you'll see an enormous amount of, you know, plates and mugs and paper models. There's an enormous amount of this stuff. I would say probably no architecture has been this popular in Britain since the kind of Georgian craze of the sixties and seventies, ironically enough. And if someone is still ignoring all that work or unaware of all that work, and they're working in local government, that's their problem and not ours. That's them being ignorant and lazy. And I can't be bothered to argue with those people anymore, because 10 years ago, there was a question of, like, right, let's have this debate. And we had it. And we've convinced thousands and thousands of people. And basically, everybody under 45 more or less agrees. So I I don't think we could be doing anything we're not already doing.
0: So then the question becomes, these buildings, for the most part, have not been looked after. And it's clear that to get the UK's energy use down to what we'll be able to supply with zero carbon electricity, we're going to need to retrofit some of these buildings. And this may mean big changes to the way they look. So I know you've thought a lot about this, but what's your take on, on Park Hill or you know some of the work being done in Glasgow to tower blocks? How do we go about this in a way that's sympathetic and does the job?
2: Yeah. Speaking just from an architectural perspective, I think there's a difference here between the generic mass housing of the period and things like Park Hill, and you have different solutions for those different problems. For like your average system built block, of which we obviously have hundreds and Glasgow has more than any other city, you could probably look at, and it's not often I say go and look at post-Soviet Eastern Europe, but go and look mm-hmm. at post-Soviet Eastern Europe because there, at least half the population has grown up in large panel concrete housing built between the mid-50s and the late 80s. It dominates the landscape in the way that the Victorian terrace dominates ours, And I think because of that, they have a very unpretentious and pragmatic relation to it. And generally, they've put a layer of insulation on and a layer of stucco, and they painted them. And they've repaired the lift lobbies, and they cut the grass. And you can find that in Poland, in Estonia, in Czech Republic, Slovakia. And they've actually managed it much better than we have. And they've demolished extremely little. Like Warsaw, for instance, of its post-war housing program, which was gigantic, I think there was some housing that had sort of experimental plastic panels on which they ended up demolishing because it was unsafe. About 99% of what they built is still there and is now insulated and is now very nice. And Glasgow should really, I think, have been looking at that. And I think where they were looking instead was Chicago, which basically demolished more than half of their, of their multi-storey housing. And that was a big mistake. I think in general, don't ever look at the U.S. on anything to do with architecture and planning from the last 50 years, if you can possibly avoid it. And that was their big enthusiasm. So of what they've done, I mean, I remember the last time I was there, I was looking at Anislinn Court, strange kind of prefab Trelik Tower in the affluent bit of the of the West End, and the cladding was all being taken off because a lot of the kind of fancy cladding that that with the New Labour Decent Homes Programme was put on thousands of blocks around the country has in many cases proven to be quite unsafe. Whereas the much simpler and cheaper option that, you know, is the norm in like Bratislava or Warsaw, we've not really done to the same degree. Um, Looking at London councils, this is very much what Islington have done when they've renovated their 60s system-built blocks. They've just insulated them and put on a layer of stucco and, and they look all right. But mostly there's this idea that that things have to look a bit more fancy than that. You can't just do that. It's not really regeneration if you just do that. And so some of the blocks in Glasgow, they're all right. I quite like the thing actually, I'm not sure how ecologically sensitive this is, but I like it. I like the thing where they have uh, neon lights on them in Glasgow. I think that's actually a, very, a really nice touch. But by and large, they've demolished a lot of stuff they shouldn't have demolished. And they've gone for expensive and unsafe solutions rather than simple and safe ones. On Park Hill, I feel like a bore for England on Park Hill. So I'll try and keep it brief. And the main thing with Park Hill is that actually the last thing it seemed on Urban Splash's mind was insulation. What was on Urban Splash's mind was how can we sell this building? Which is fine. They're a developer. That's what they do. They develop. And they developed that building. Their concern wasn't making it safer or making it warmer or making it work as a better social space or anything like that. Their concern was how they could sell it. And in the end, because of the financial crisis and how it particularly hit places like Sheffield very hard, they haven't sold particularly well. But in many ways, it would have been quite a complicated project, not an impossible one, but it would have been a complicated project to upgrade that to current standards of insulation. So the Polish approach, for instance, they ended up doing this with a load of really spectacular, brutalist high-rises in the centre of Wrocław, And a lot of people were kind of like, you can't just put your styrofoam insulation and your stucco on this. It's it's brutalist building. It's supposed to be concrete. And they were like, look, this is our budget. This is what we're going to do. We've got these materials. We've got this money. Like, shut up. And they did it. And it doesn't really look as fun as it used to. It used to have this wonderful, proper Corbusian, like, red brick raw concrete thing and now it's kind of a layer of grey styrofoam and that's a bit of a shame so there are examples like that where i think you're dealing with a monument of architecture and you have to be a bit more clever and you probably spend quite a bit more money in order to come up with something that respects its integrity with your average block
1: you don't have to respect its integrity and i don't think it matters in the same way and then thinking more broadly about sustainability there are some takes that put all the emphasis on production that there's a hundred companies responsible for 71 percent of emissions but people are buying products from these companies and in terms of behavior there's still some ideas about self-sufficiency or a sustainable lifestyle as being something that you can kind of opt into rather than something about the systems that we all live in so yeah what's your what's your take on? the balance between sort of production and consumption
2: and... I mean, the thing with that that always strikes me is that there's, like, been one really successful example of a particular technology or particular material being banned because of its ecological effect as a result of the hole in the ozone layer, and that's when CFCs were banned. And there wasn't a kind of, like everyone you should stop using cfcs we're going to stick a big sticker on things and say don't use cfcs it was like no cfcs were just banned and after a while there was no longer a hole in the ozone layer it really was that simple and of course when you're dealing with petrol that's not quite the same and you know the, and the, the products of the petroleum industry it's not like you know a product that goes into hairspray and fridges where you can just go right we're banning this product now you're dealing with a huge part of the economy and one of these staple materials but that's what you've got to move towards you've got to start banning things because as it is it does rest a great deal on kind of ethical consumption and the thing of ethical consumption is that people who do it are usually those that can afford it and you can't treat the continuation of civilization (laughs) as a lifestyle choice um, it's not a good idea. And yeah, that's a thing that obviously the Green Movement has spent quite a lot of effort in the last few years to try and move away from. You know, more power to them for 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 doing that, for trying to make it less dog on string. That 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 that's good. But the thing with that is that you do then have to have government action that comes with it of going like, we're no longer gonna allow people to produce this shit.
0: In some of our other episodes, guests have talked about the aesthetics of all this and and you've written about forging the future out of materials that are reused out of things that reused and and a kind of ad hoc aesthetic that may come out of that do you think that's one of the ways forward with this whole agenda
2: yeah i guess i mean i think that's always the thing of just trying to make it look like something that someone has actually come to want to live in. That's always quite an important thing, sort of generating some sort of, you know, I don't want to go too kind of psychoanalytic about it, but, you know, one of the things with, like, the kind of world of people driving wherever they like and having a big suburban house and so forth is that it's been quite a successful sleight of hand to convince a lot of people that this is right and normal and good. And you have to have, I think, some sort of counter-effort to kind of make people want something different. And in that regard, I remember being really impressed with the lilac housing scheme in Leeds because I'd I'd, I'd seen some of white design stuff in Bristol, which was much more hairy. And that's Bristol for you, I suppose. Whereas this was actually, you could imagine it just being really straightforward housing, a grid of almost kind of minimalist looking design with a nice public space in the middle. And you could just see that and you can go, right, you could build like, 300 of these, and it would still be pleasant. And that's the important thing, isn't it? It's like, we've got to scale this up, so you've got to have models that are scalable. And I think they'd managed to produce one there, and that was quite impressive.
0: But I think, you know, more and more architects who are good designers are embracing this agenda and figuring out that, you know, it doesn't have to necessarily mean straw bales, it can mean good passive design and thicker walls and windows in the right place that aren't too big. And that takes you a long way down the road. Now that's for new build for retrofit. It's a whole different deal. And that's where the challenge is because each one is different.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, although again, I think it's not always different. One of the things I liked about the Polish example is that one of those blocks, the same as any other of those blocks, yeah. in much the same way as like one victorian house is by and large much the same as another yeah. victorian house built for the same social class at the same time so you actually can come up with quite standard models for those um i've always thought it'd be quite fun to imagine the kind of retrofitting program like that on system built housing in eastern europe on victorian housing in britain obviously people's heating bills would uh disappear to a large degree but on the other hand they'd no longer have period features
1: or at least those would be on the well you've got to make a choice of inside or insulating inside or or outside because the the kind of energy modeling from the likes of the the London Energy Transformation Initiative who've kind of crunched all the numbers they're like, oh yeah, we we will need to retrofit pretty much all of the housing stock. Maybe you know, if something's listed, we can leave it alone. But the when they sort of add up how much energy we'll have available and how much energy our homes are using, we're going to have to retrofit, and that could that could be transformative for for how everywhere looks. I mean, maybe often the compromise is is you keep the front brick and insulate on the inside there, but everything else is external. But yeah, it could really transform the way the country looks if it, if it actually happens. Britain's going to be rendered country now, like, you know,
0: <laughs> Poland.
2: I mean, obviously, you know, like stucco is, it means everywhere will look like Cheltenham, which I'm not really sure if is a good thing. <laughs> but obviously, there's a, a, a stucco tradition here that goes back a long way.
0: And what about, one last question, what about the, the more one-off buildings? that really are, do warrant particular attention.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is one of the things where I reckon someone like Barnabas Coulter would probably have, like, a very detailed... You know, if you were to kind of go, OK, how do you insulate the Leicester Engineering Building and it's still looking like the Leicester Engineering Building, it would probably have a, a detailed thing that he's worked out in his head of how you do it. And I, I don't, unfortunately. And there is the question of, you know, how you do those things where, like... I presume that something like Park Hill, for instance, if you were to have, let's say that rather than doing what they did, they had decided just to insulate the whole thing while preserving it as a listed building, you'd probably have had to insulate from the inside, and that would have been quite disruptive for residents. But would it have been as disruptive as them all being moved out of the estate forever? Probably not. <laughs> um, so on that level, there is that minority where you would do that, and it would you know it would be disruptive but then there's actually a precedent for that in the decent homes program which is the kitchens that were fitted as part of the the decent homes program which actually pissed a lot of people off well actually, because they didn't really need them and there wasn't actually any logical reason why they all had to have these kitchens at the installation point it made a lot of sense but like, yeah, they, yeah they literally did put a new kitchen and everything that they did up with decent homes um but again there's a precedent in that that they have the government has fairly recently you know only 10 years ago gone into the homes of hundreds of people and given them different kitchens there's no reason why they couldn't necessarily do a similar thing of insulation when it comes to things like park hill that you know that that way you want to to maintain the original fabric but that's very much guesswork on
0: my part oh and that's a brilliant place to conclude thank you so much (laughs) In the next episode of Climate Champions, we'll hear from Harry Patikas, founder of RAFT, Retrofit Action for Tomorrow, an organization that is doing remarkable work with schools, children, and their families to empower them with the skills to address climate emergency. Harry will also tell us about the Enerfit retrofit of his own 1970s terraced home in Lewisham, which was mostly a self-build project. You can find out more on the Climate Champions webpage at architectsjournal.co.uk where you can also send comments and subscribe. Thanks for listening.